Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and this is episode 191 on outdoor adventures and community in recovery with Margaret Burton. Margaret is a friend. She is a fellow person in eating disorder recovery. And this episode is wonderful. We talk about the taking of inventory we do in grief We talk about how to better communicate our pain, the deep empathy and healing of outdoor adventures, and like I said, the importance of community in recovery. Uh, I love this chat. Margaret works for a wonderful organization called Bring Change to Mind, which is uh, what's founded by Glenn Close. You know her as Cruella. I know her as being a terrifying force in that one movie, Fatal Attraction. Uh, we talk about that a bit, but this, I love this chat. I love chatting with Margaret. She is a gem of Feely Human. Before we get to the episode, though, I wanted to just say a couple of things. One is that as I'm recording this, I'm experiencing really deep, dark depression. And with that comes the usual bouts of suicidal ideation and stuff like that. I should say, back up and just say there is a trigger warning for this episode because we do talk about eating disorders. And there's a trigger warning for uh, what I'm about to say, which is depression is hard. And this is a thing I wrote on the Yumi Empathy Instagram recently, which is this. You've been here before. It's what I tell myself when I'm stuck in the deeper, more treacherous caverns of my depression. It's where I'm at as I write this. All becomes meaningless and worthless and less and less, and I just want it I just want it to end and end and end. I've been here before. You've been here before. You know what this feels like, however hard and horrible. It's familiar. You have sat with it, gnashed your teeth against it, bloodied your forehead on its sharp edges. You know this place. And you know you've gotten through it. You know you have survived. You know that you are capable. You know that it won't kill you. You know that it gets lighter up there, eventually. You know because you've done it countless times. You've been here before, and perhaps we've all been here before, in our lifetime, in our past, in our future, maybe the next go-around when when we're butterflies or hound dogs. We've all been here and there, and we'll be here again. So I wrote that because... That's what I tell myself when I'm really in the dark shit, which is, you've been here before, and I know the feeling of it, it's hard, doesn't take away from the fact that it's hard and really difficult, 
but it does remind me that I am not alone. It reminds me that I have resilience and that I can do hard things, right? So I hope that brings you maybe a little comfort. I know it's a little dark, but that's that's humanity, right? We're dark and bright and we're all of it. And I like to show up as myself. So that's that's my that's myself. Uh so a couple of things before the episode. Uh, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. I know I'm a broken record, but this broken record continues to play. It's actually playing a a tune that is really gentle to the ear if you really pay attention. Uh, so if you haven't done that, please leave a rating and review. Head to feelyhuman.co for wonderful shirts and pins and mugs if you want to support me. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash feelyhuman where you get a bonus episode every month. And the last thing I'll say is this is September. It's Suicide Awareness Month. Look out for yourself. Look out for the people in your lives. Tell them you love them. Start there. And uh, there's wonderful support out there. So please know that you're not alone. And in September, I'm I'm trying to uh, set up the next Feely hikes. And I'm going to do that in LA. So if you're interested in doing a sort of probably later September hike in LA with me and other Feely humans, let me know. DM me on Instagram at Feely Human or just send me a email, feelyhuman at gmail.com. Okay, let's get to the episode, shall we? This is episode 191 on outdoor adventures and community in recovery with Margaret Burton. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I am downright ebullient to be here with fellow adventurer, Florence and the Machine superfan, and bringer of change to mind, it's Margaret Burton. Hello, Margaret. Hello. That was a really great intro, especially um, ebullient. Ebullient, yeah. That's a great word. It is a good word. Do you know what it means? I mean, it sounds like it means like up and bouncy. 
Yeah. I, it reminds me of another word I'm trying to think of, but I was just, I don't know if I've even read that word in a book. Oh, really? It's, Maybe yeah. I I'm sure you have. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't seem too uncommon, but it, yeah, it generally means, yeah, like excited, uh, happy, joyful, you know, full of all those things. It's great. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Uh, let's get right to it. Emotional check-in time. We always kick off the show with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling? Um, well, today I'm, I'm feeling a lot of different emotions. Um, my grandma passed away yesterday, um, but it was in the most like beautiful and peaceful way possible. We knew it was coming. I got to spend a lot of time with her. Um, so while I'm very sad about it, um, there's also this strange level of peacefulness about it. Um, and I think sometimes too, when, when you're, when people get older, there's, at least for me, I always had this like anxiety about when my grandma would pass away. Mm. Um, and it, I guess that anxiety is gone now in a peaceful way, not a bad way. Um, conversely though, I'm having moments of excitedness. <laughs> um, mm. I have, I have some fun stuff coming up. So, um, yeah, when I get reminded of my grandma, I get a little sad, do, do a little crying and then, um, my mood will switch and it's going a little bit back and forth today. Yeah. Well, isn't that so human, right? Like we can hold the the sadness of uh, a beloved grandmother passing and also hold the joy of like, you know, excited future endeavors and also think about, you know, what beautiful gifts, you know, what, what an impact your grandmother had on the world and you, you know, and we can hold all of that and honor all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, i i i th- i've been thinking about that a lot a lot since I had a chat with um, Rabbi Steve Leader on this show, and he's someone who's been at the deathbed of like thousands of people, mm-hmm. and he talks about he wrote this book called The Beauty of What Remains, and it's it's really about like how the fact by the simple fact that things end that people's lives end, that, that we don't live forever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing that gives all of this meaning and beauty. Totally. And and while it's hard to lose people and, and lose, you know, dogs or lose loved ones, it's, it's also a reminder to like, you know, to be present with the ones you have and be present with the moments you have. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I know for me, um, anytime a death has happened, um, different emotions have come up. Cause I guess it depends on the age of the person in my relationship. But for example, I had a close friend, um, pass away last summer and he was my age. So that for me was, mm. um, a lot more jarring and, and very much so was one of those wake up calls of like, um, really appreciating life and, uh, also knowing that like having that feeling of, of wanting to share with everybody how much they meant to me. And I mean, I've, I've gone through grief before, so I know that stage lasts only so long. And since I was aware of that, I was just like, I got to take advantage of this right now. It's happening. I got to do it. (laughs) And like, let me see how I can make this last longer. Um, 
but yeah, it is, it's also interesting with the passing of somebody who's older because, um, like with my grandma, for example, I'm, I'm thinking about her, her very long lasting impact, um, through the years and, uh, for, for my situation, she was really like the matriarch of my family. Mm. So it's interesting to think like, wow, like when somebody, when one person holds or, or comes into such a position, it's, it's interesting to think of what will happen when, when that person is missing. Hmm. Yeah. What, I mean, I, I guess the follow-up to that is what will happen. Are, are there like things that you have to um, sort of deal with family-wise in terms of that, in terms of her being gone now? Luckily in this situation, I don't know. Okay. I, um, you know what, death is interesting because also my, my stepdad died two years ago and um, that was sort of my first um, glimpse into all of the like legal things um, mm-hmm. and um, all of that kind of stuff that happens when somebody dies. And my stepdad had it somewhat figured out, but not everything. But I will tell you, my grandma had it all buttoned up. I was laughing hysterically because... Um, so half of my family's in England, um, my dad's side. So my sister's in London. And when, um, when my, it was like two months ago, actually, my grandma was like almost like she, she was dying. Um, mm-hmm. so we all flew out for that. And, um, it, my sister was actually able to fly from London to the U S um, it was difficult, but it was doable. And so I was laughing because I was like, it, it was around the same time um, that Prince Philip in the UK died. Mm. So like Prince Harry went to the UK and there's like whatever drama about that. And I'm like, oh, Alex, you are like Prince Harry. And then my grandma had everything so planned, like her all of whatever all the stuff you have to plan is but including her funeral down to the detail and i'm like wow. well grandma's over here just like prince philip everything's planned she planned it all <laughs> she knows exactly what she wants that's so hilarious. in this case no i don't i there's nothing that's going to land on me at all it's just like thinking of future family functions you know it all sort of revolved around her yeah. um yeah yeah so it'd be interesting to see yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on something you said, which is in regards to, I mean, first of all, it sounds like you, I mean, you've had some loss in your life in terms of like people around you dying and, and that's never easy. Uh, and I, I will say when that happens in my own experience and, and from what I've heard from others is this thing where we take inventory, right? We take inventory of like, okay, who am I? what sort of what what why am i here what what am i doing is it meaningful right like those mm-hmm. types of questions do you make a habit of that kind of self sort of inventory inquiry inquiry stuff i do i think it actually happens pretty naturally for me but there mm. are times where it it happens um sporadically too where something will will really put me in that mode um so, yeah, I, I think, and there's, ugh, it's, that's a hard question because there's so many various levels of it. Sometimes sure. I get, I'm a very curious person. Sometimes I think a little bit too much of life and what the meaning of everything is. And I'm sure everybody or a lot of people have moments like this where I'm like, I might as well just go on a mountain. <laughs> just like, why are we in society? Yeah, um, I, I but, feel that. Yeah. Um, but then also, you know, I, there's, 
a lower level to that of, of always wanting to make sure that I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing things that are meaningful to me, Mm. um, or I'm moving in a direction of doing things that are meaningful to me. And then on like a lower level where things kind of sporadically get, um, um, triggered is not the right word, but come up. Um, like I, many years ago, I worked at Trader Joe's and, uh, we, we had regular customers. And especially when I did the morning shift, we really had regular customers. And there was this older um, blind woman who would shop and she always dressed like a librarian, which I love. <laughs> um, but I love really, a librarian. Yes. Um, I really, I really loved this woman. I would help her shop every now and then. And, um, you know, it just, it made me very grateful Um for, for having eyesight, you know, and having mm. a completely working body. Um, I think I might've went off on a tangent, but that's what it reminded me of. No, I love it. I love it. it I mean, it's, we are all, all of us, you know, dealing with varying levels of privilege and experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important to think and be curious to use your word, uh, always about how that interacts with the world and other people and reflect on our own experiences in terms of privilege, in terms of the things we take for granted, you know, all of that stuff like that. I think that type of curiosity leads to more um, connection and equity and action, you know, in those areas. So I think it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 It's good to be reminded of. Uh, yeah. Cause I mean, it's, it's natural to forget about certain things. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, sort of going off on a mountain, uh, which I very much relate to and, and think sort of about often. Um, when I, when I uh, before I met Jessica, I, I went off on a lot of adventures, and um, she's really robbed me of that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, my life is worse because of her. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, but like when I was right right when I met her, I was like gearing up for like I w- I wanted to be like an, uh, a ranch hand, like on like a horse ranch in like Montana. Like, was, that was okay. sort of like the romantic dream, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. It didn't work out. And I eventually worked <laughs> in Alaska, you know, for the second time. But I, what is it about? Cause I, I am very much an adventurous soul. Like I, 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 I get so much from nature and it's very, as, as an introvert and as someone who, who, you know, has a lot of mental health stuff, um, it's very important to me. So the question to you is, what does that mean to you? What does nature mean to you? What do, you know, you're a, you're an adventurer. You like to go on adventures. Like, what does that mean to you as a person? Yeah, I think this is something I've been thinking about a bit recently, because um, especially this past year in the pandemic, I've been going on loads of outdoor adventures. Um, I, I think for me, I feel super blessed to have grown up going to an adventure survival camp every summer. <laughs> so, like, we're, it was, yeah. So, what like, is this? 
Dude, it was the best. I went, I mean, I went for 11 years. Um, when you're younger, you start off just like doing like a one night backpacking overnight, but you, I mean, you're 11. So to be exposed to backpacking when you're 11, now looking back, I'm like, this rad, like, it's so cool. That is so cool. Yeah, what was the, um, where was this and what's the organization? Are they still around? Yeah. So it used to be called Camp St. Michael, but we're not part of the diocese anymore. So it's called Redwood Adventure Camp. And it's, um, you know, I think it's still technically in Mendocino County, but it might be in Humboldt County because it's near, it's near Garberville on the Eel River. So it, it's up there yeah, in California. Um, in the middle of nowhere, like our campus technically on BLM land or well, we own the diocese used to own the actual central part of camp, but then all the backpacking and hikes we do are out on BLM land. Got it. Got it. Um, so yeah, but then by the time you're like 16, we do a, you're in the adventure survival year. And so we do a 24 hour solo, you get three matches, a tin can, a whistle, a pocket knife. And then the Bible, because it was a Catholic camp. Um, but they like put you out in the woods, you build your own shelter, you find your own food, and you just chill for wow. like two hours. Yeah. Wow. My year, though, we weren't allowed to make, because we're taught how to make one match fires. So they give you three matches. So you have three tries, but there was a lot of forest fires that year. So we weren't allowed to make a fire. So Usually you can only choose between wearing either like a sweatshirt or long pants, but we got to wear a sweatshirt and long pants since we didn't have a fire. But man, I would have appreciated that fire. I bet. It got really cold. Uh, cold. Tell me about that first solo adventure for you. Actually, that was a very awakening moment for me because I remember... So it gets dark in the summer in California, probably around nine. And so I just remember I like just kind of crawled into my shelter and like attempted to sleep all night, but it was kind of hard to sleep. And then the one piece of advice is not like, don't wake up as soon as the sky gets light because it is very early. Like you just, it just happens. And I couldn't, I'm like, I got to get out. And I just, I remember I was like pretty cold and like, this sounds like super privileged, but like, you know, I'm a 16 year old, I'm cold, I'm in the woods. And I was just sitting there thinking, like, being super sad, because I'm like, this is what homeless people experience all the time. Like they're sleeping out, like on the ground, they're cold. And like, here I am. And like, I was, um, I was super sick with my eating disorder that and in fact, I actually was not supposed to be doing my 24 hour solo. Um, because mm. I was in treatment. And so they told them, like, not that I wasn't allowed to do that, but they let me do it anyway. Um, Mm. so anyway, I just had this moment of like, what am I doing in my life? Like I, like a lot of people like, you know, things that don't actually really help, but I was just like, so many people in the world don't have food and here I am like doing all these things and, um, just feeling very kind of sad (laughs) about like what I was doing to myself, Mm. um, is actually that, that is what my, my 24 hour solo brought up for me. Yeah. So it was, it was really a, quite an internal reflection of your eating disorder and, you know, your privilege and yeah. Why was that sort of a turning point in your eating disorder recovery? No, not really. unfortunately. But you know, it was, it, it was, I'd say, like a moment because those moments yeah. didn't happen much then. Yeah, yeah. 
no, th- those moments are important. Um, I I just think it's very cool that um, you were in a very nerdy adventure camp. Like that's okay, that's yeah, it's the great, the best. But I do going back to your main question though is yeah. like my love of nature definitely stems from that because um, camp was like my happy place and my safe place. So going into nature for me um, feels reminds me of that feeling Mm. very much like safety and comfort. Um, and I think this past year reflecting on, on like why, because my friend and I, I have an adventure buddy, Nicole and Nicole and I, like, we just keep hiking and walking and walking and, and we always hike too much. Like we don't turn around soon enough. So we, we always do a minimum of 10 miles and we, we're just very tired, (laughs) like always. And I'm like, why, why don't we turn around sooner? But I think, um, I, I realized that like being out in nature for that long, I always like to think that technology doesn't affect me that much, but when I am disconnected, I realize there is like a much deeper sense of peace. Mm. My anxiety levels for sure go down because last summer I did, um, I went to Desolation Wilderness in Tahoe. So I was off the grid for kind of three days, but like two. Um, and, and being completely off of my phone for that amount of time, like that, that feeling of just being and not having to think about like somebody you have to text or something you have to do, or even something you have to look up. It's just like, I just am here now. Yeah. And we don't, we really don't have that a lot in life anymore. Yeah, it really is. Some, I agree with you. It really is something uh, is, that is essential. I, I think like nowadays, I think we do need to take intentional time to carve out that space. Like I, for everyone listening, I highly recommend taking, even if it's just like half a day or a day, like maybe every Saturday you put away your phone or maybe every, you know, three months or twice a year you go on, you know, a backpacking adventure for two or three days and you leave your phone or just turn it off or something. But, or a lot of those places you're not going to have access to internet anyway, so it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, it it is a really, uh, like I, I can reflect, you know, in my own experiences, it is a really healing part of of those types of adventures because you are you're dealing with a level of silence you're not getting in the day-to-day world right Mm -hmm. there's just so much noise there's there's there's, this and there's noise in our head right that we have to like make sense of (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah hmm um yeah i i adventures like i and i think about like like, I just want to do adventures forever as long as I can, right? Like, I, yeah. I feel, I, I honestly, I would make the argument that an adventure is an act of empathy. And by that, I mean, you know how we like, we hear, and it is true, where like, you, it's good to travel because you're learning different cultures, you're meeting different people, and that's very, an empathetic, can be a very an empathetic experience. Yes. The same is true of, of sort of like going off on, big adventures is because you're communing with a, maybe a deeper power, a, a larger force, mother nature, right? You're dealing with something that's like this big mystery. And I think 
a lot of empathy work is about tapping into our stillness and our curiosity and our willingness to just allow things to be. And when you're out in nature and especially out on like backcountry, you know, sort of hikes and stuff, you're just, okay, Mother Nature, like, show me what you got. You know, you're very much like there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, being out in nature, that connection piece is really big for me as well. I, I feel a lot more connected in many, many different ways. I like more connected to the earth, obviously, but that's big because we aren't, we aren't really a whole lot anymore, depending on where you live actually, or what you do. Um, And then, yeah, feeling more connected to my own body as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. The body piece is very important. And I'm sure that at a certain point played a role in your recovery, right? You know, sort of you going out into nature, sort of feeling your body, sort of, uh, feeling the strength in your body and feeling what your body can do, right? Like, I know for me, you know, I grew up lots of adventures. I played soccer forever and and ran and hiked and all that stuff. And then in my eating disorder, I wasn't doing that. Like, I could not do a lot of that because I stripped myself of that ability, you know? I was a major basketball player. Uh, which is shocking because I'm so small, but I was point guard. So I just swapped that basketball out of everybody's hands. Um, but yeah, when nice. I was, when I was sick in high school, I, I quit and I, that's, I like, don't really have regrets in life. And I don't know if I would call this a regret, but it's something that makes me very sad because it was a giant, giant, giant part of my life. Um, and I mean, now, now that I'm well, like I play basketball for fun. Um, but yeah, there's, when you're sick, there's, just so many physical things you can't do. And that's like a huge, I definitely one of the biggest parts of of my recovery was like, uh, wanting to be able to do things. I mean, socially, Mm. first of all, that's the biggest component, but then even I remind myself of all the things I can do physically. Um, cause on all these adventures, like for sure, backpacking, (laughs) you can't, can't do that. (laughs) You're not eating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you remember when it started for you, your eating disorder? Yeah. Like I used to say all the time it started when I was 11 and I like, I'd say that's when the thoughts started, like mm-hmm. behavior started more between like 12 and 13. So for me, like it was middle school. So by the end of sixth grade, definitely in seventh grade. Um, so what were the thoughts? Um, like, fe- like feeling fat. So I just Mm. really, I have this specific memory of my friend standing in front of the mirror and we were in fifth grade and like, I had friends who were already dieting and she was standing in front of the mirror, like saying how fat she was. And like, I remember very clearly thinking like, wow, I'm glad I don't think that. But then very shortly after, I think because I was thinking about how she thought about that, like starting to, um, like look at myself in different ways. Hmm. And then I, I had a lot of different emotional things happening. And then you're, you're going through puberty and everything's changing. Yeah, your, I mean, your emotions are changing. Your body's changing. Like I went through puberty very, very early. So there is a lot of um, attention on my body. Um, so yeah, it was like, it was just the actual perfect storm for an eating disorder. Mm. And 
you know, I know for me, like, uh, it was, you know, it was a means of control. I, I felt very out of control in my life. Like, looking back on those early times in your eating disorder, like, what what were some of your... I mean, I, I don't, uh, coping mechanism is maybe not the right word, but like, there's certainly a lot of coping within disordered eating. And by that, I mean, your attempt is maybe to diminish oneself, but also to like cope just enough to maybe live. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering like what that looked like for you. So for me, um, in like, most of the early years, my eating disorder, it was like, it was used as a form of communication. So hmm. there, th that was sort of the coping tool is <laughs> just like, look, I'm not okay without having to say it. Um, sure. And then I, I definitely didn't realize this then, but I, this is only something I recently realized um, like two years ago is that um, my eating disorder really helps with all the anxiety I have. So, um, I think that was in play even when I was very yeah. young. It, it was definitely, it was a coping tool for all my emotions for sure. Yeah, it can be. Um, who were you trying to communicate that you were not okay? Who, to who? Or to, to everybody, <laughs> mainly to my parents, um, but to everybody yeah. being like, mm. everything is messed up right now. And like, I'm not okay. Were anyone uh, getting the message? I think, you know, that's what kind of makes me sad is like, I think, yes, but um, I, like people just didn't know what to do. Um, yeah, I did. I, what is actually kind of shocking is I'm the one who asked for help um, my freshman year of high school. Um, and I, I think even in high school, when it was very apparent that I was not well, um, I think people were also just like, oh, well, she's, she's in treatment she's doing therapy. So like, they were like, well, there's nothing I can do. Um, hmm. I, yeah, I think like, I look back a lot I, as I've gotten older at like middle school and high school and thinking about all this stuff that like all my friends and I went through and thinking that like we all went through some pretty grown up stuff um, and we helped each other in the best way that we could. But like it's when you're a teenager, like the best way you can is not um, doesn't go super far a lot of times. Yeah. You just don't have the tools, right? Yeah. Like you don't know what to say. Yeah. Like I think about my time as a teenager and around that age and I, I was struggling and I I had no idea like how to voice it and, and, you know, I don't even think friends picked up on it. And it's such a devastating part of mental illness, I think, which is the isolation piece, right? Mm -hmm. Because of maybe, well, just because of the nature of it itself, but also because of just the lack of awareness, uh, lack of education, you know, that, that we're exposed to around these types of things. Yeah. Yeah. I will say though, that like, I, I grew up in a really special place with a really strong sense of community. And I think people 
did take care of me in the ways that they could. <laughs> like, mm. you know, I spent a lot of times, um, I, I, I spent a lot of time spending the night at friends' houses. And also I spent like a, a majority of time living with some friends. Um, and that in of itself was really helpful. Um, like my friends and their parents were definitely, um, family and like they, they did treat me like family as well. So there is a big community supporting and helping take care of me because I, I do think about that a lot and think about what would have happened if I didn't have that. And I'm like, I'm so mm. grateful for it. So grateful yeah. for it. Do you think you would have died without that support? Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, actually that's, that's a like, very straightforward question, but kind of, yeah, <laughs> I do. Um, just knowing that like, there are only a couple moments where I actually was completely hopeless. Um, and knowing what those moments felt like, I feel like if I didn't have my community, I would have been there a lot faster and a lot more often. Yeah. Wow. I'm grateful that you had them. Thank you. Yeah. So when you at, when you sort of reached out for help, uh, what did that look like? Um, I like I wrote my mom a note, and then I think <laughs> um, no, but also oh my god, I haven't thought about this in forever. Do you remember that HBO documentary Thin? Uh, yeah, I remember. I'm aware of it. I never saw it. Okay. Yeah. Well, so Lauren Greenfield is the director and she, she's a photographer too, though. So like there's a whole photography book about that documentary. And okay. I had, I had bought that book. <laughs> Interesting. I know. At what? Like 16 or? I was like 15. Okay. Yeah. Which also is wild though, because like it wasn't, you could buy things online, but it wasn't that normal even then. Like somewhat, but like we didn't really do it. But I'm pretty sure I would have had to have bought that online. But yeah, so I, I'm pretty sure I gave her that book and then wrote a note. <laughs> and I did it before I went to school. I just like put it out. And then I remember all day at school. I mean, I was just, I felt like I was going to throw up. Um, but yeah, my mom, when she picked me up, she was just like, we're going to get you help. She did, she did the right move, you know? I'm like, I'm very surprised. <laughs> like, um, I mean, and in a, in a way, like I, I had Kaiser, which I have a lot of complaints about Kaiser. Um, I like actually took, I didn't take them to court. I like did a whole case against them though, with the state, state department of managed healthcare. But, um, at least like when, when we went to go get help, like, you know, they have their, everything is within Kaiser. So I went to a therapist and they did have an eating disorder program. So okay. it, it was a little bit more seamless than, um, probably other places. Yeah. Cause it probably, if there wasn't anything, I'm sure it would have just like dropped off, you know, like, meh, whatever. Well, I'm glad there was. Yeah. 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 Do you remember what you said in that note? Were you, were you sort of tiptoeing around the language or were you just saying I need help? I don't remember what I said, but I'm, I, yeah. I think I just said like, I need help. Like, I think I might have a mm. problem. I do mm. remember write, like writing the note very vividly, though, because it, it was this like soup. 
I don't even know how to describe the moment, but like, it was so clear in my head that like, either I was going to ask for help then, or I wasn't going to ask for help for a long, long, long time. Wow. And I think that is true. I think if I didn't make that decision at that moment, I, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have ever asked for help. Wow. I just want to take a moment to, to give that little Margaret, you know, such a big hug. Cause like, it's like, that is such a courageous move. And, um, yeah, I, I like, I'm welling up thinking about it. It's, it's like, it's so hard to be direct and to speak plainly and to speak from our hearts as kids when we don't feel safe right um and you know i I know and we don't have to get into it i'll I'll, I'll, uh, of course but like i know like you didn't always feel safe right like at home and it didn't always feel comfortable so just doing that as maybe a last resort maybe whatever but it's still such a self-honoring decision and and i i'm i'm grateful you you made it no, me too. I do like whenever I do think about it, I'm like, whoa, like I can't believe I did that. It's <laughs> like, pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. It's it is wild. Um, but I am glad. I also don't think I quite knew what I was doing though. <laughs> because I don't know. I think um I don't know if a lot of people have this experience, but I think it's somewhat common where like you go into recovery thinking like for the first time and think that it's probably going to be easy. And I, Mm. for me, I had that experience and I just, I very, (laughs) there's another very clear moment. I remember like, you know, I went to like my first group and uh, then I came home and I still binged and purged. And I was like, Oh, well, um, I guess I'm still doing this. Um, Like I just thought like, if I like, had to go to therapy and had to go to this thing. Like it would just make me stop. Um, (laughs) That was not the case. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Yeah. Well, isn't that so true of anything really? Like we, we humans tend to think like, Oh, well I go to therapy. I'll be fixed. And then, you know, I'll be, I'll be sent home with a, with a lollipop or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Really the work is continuous. Mm -hmm. um, You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how long were you sort of quote unquote in treatment? Oh, it's a journey. (laughs) It's a long journey. I, uh, um, okay. I did, I did that outpatient program from freshman to senior year. Um, but with hospitalizations in between it and moves. So I was in it. And then, um, unfortunately at the time, Kaiser, Kaiser did not do residential um, and the only higher level of, cause they didn't even have PHP. So they didn't have partial. So the only higher level of care they had was inpatient. Um, so it was almost like essentially like you just had to wait until you got sick enough to go to the medical hospital, which I did. And then because I went to the medical hospital, I was um, authorized to go into inpatient, um, but inpatient for kids was a psychiatric unit and it was just everybody together. We, there was like an eating disorder program, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty wild. Um, I was not very happy and Kaiser only does two weeks. So like, 
I was only there two weeks and it was like, you know, as a kid, like I, I thought like, oh, well, I went to this really intense treatment, except it wasn't. Um, and like, I'm supposed to be better. So there was a lot of guilt with that because I wasn't. Um, mm. And then, um, you know, returned to the outpatient, but then again was hospitalized and put into inpatient a year later. And because of that, since things weren't working out at home, um, I was um, sent to England to go live with my dad and do treatment there, um, which was an interesting experience because they put me, they literally took me out of the hospital, put me on a plane the next day to like move to a different country. And then um, I was like cut off from my friends. I was cut off from the world, but I wasn't even in treatment because the NHS system there, they have such a long waiting list. So I wasn't even in outpatient (laughs) until two months later. Um, and that, I mean, that experience was also interesting, but anyway, then I came back home, um, and I did decide to do, cause I turned 18 in September. So I was so over the kids program. I'm like, I've been doing this for like three and a half years. So I did like the adult program for a while. Um, but at that point, like I had hit such a low going to England, um, that it was a wake up call for me. And so I, I was like, okay, I know what will happen if I decide to go down the eating disorder route. Like I can, I can lay out the steps precisely because I've done them all. And I know that like, it doesn't lead me to get help anywhere that actually helps me. So like, maybe I'll try this recovery thing. <laughs> um, and I found, I found a nonprofit here in the Bay area called Beyond Hunger and they had a peer education program and what we did as peer educators was go around to middle schools and high schools around the Bay area to do a presentation, um, educating and advocating, um, around eating disorders. And I mean, that was the thing that really, really saved me. Um, hmm. I was around a group of, of women cause it was just women at the time who, who I was, who was doing it with me, um, yep. that actually wanted to get better. Um, so you all were in like early recovery? Yeah, like early recovery or like kind of we were in the progression, you know? Yeah. Um, and what was so nice because we met twice a month to to talk about like the schools we were going to, but like we didn't really. It was just like it was kind of group therapy in a way, but in such like a casual way that felt so supportive and so good. Um, mm. and our the peer educator director, like she she was really solid in recovery. So it was really nice kind of having like almost a mentor to look up to. And then um Laura Lee, who helped found it, like Laura Lee is so she's such an eccentric woman and freaking awesome. Like she's an older, <laughs> older lady. She might, she's probably in her seventies now, but she, her hair is always like, it's either pink or it's purple. Like <laughs> Lorelei's great. And so it, it was just really cool to have these older women to look up to who had recovered. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, I credit beyond hunger with like my early recovery, 100%. And then, wow. and then I went to college and um, things were okay, but what, what I kind of always reflect on is that, um, is that I had basically just like forced myself to stop doing behaviors without mm-hmm. dealing with anything. So yeah. that doesn't The underlying well. reasons. Yeah. 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 So I found a therapist in SoCal who is, I mean, she's just amazing. She's, she's, she's amazing. Um, and actually started working on stuff and then, um, eventually fell apart and, and went to real treatment finally. So I okay. went to the treatment center, 
Um, I, I had to do a lot of fighting with Kaiser and that was when I did, um, a whole case against them and I won. <laughs> wow. Then, um, I ended up being, being in treatment for eight months. Um, okay. so yeah, I don't, I do want to preface that by saying though, that like treatment isn't like the thing that fixes people. I think, um, treatment centers have changed a lot and like, there's, Sometimes they're very not helpful, but like, I, I am so glad I finally got that experience to have such an extended time to heal. <laughs> like yeah. it was, um, I, I cannot be more grateful for that. I, I think about this a lot in regards to my own recovery and, you know, I, I didn't go to any treatment centers or groups. It was just kind of me me <laughs> essentially and 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 a little bit of family support and friend support and and i i i part of me it, like um gre is grieving that like part of me wanted that sort of like group sort of healing process you know of course like i'm just happy to be recovered right yeah yeah but i also think about like what are the what are the like tenets of that recovery for me like what are the light bulb moments in regards to my own recovery you know one of them was the doctor telling me like your heart's gonna stop mm-hmm. and i was like well and i i remember thinking like literally thinking of like the the physical sort of shape of my heart and it beating in my chest and like visualizing it stopping and i was like well i don't want that i'm i'm however old I was at that point, 22 years old. Like I, that is not something I want. Yeah. Um, and then there were these, there was other moments um, like the sort of like moment where I was like, realized I can't run anymore or, you know, like realized I can't sleep anymore, you know, cause I'm, my body is in such pain. Yeah. Is this a life I want? Right. Like all these moments like that. I'm wondering if there was some little things in your recovery moments like that, that you had. Oh yeah. Oh wow. That's something I haven't ta- or thought about in a long time. Um, Just one or two, you know, anything that comes to mind. I mean, I think the the thing, um, the biggest thing for me was the social aspects. Mm. Um, and that was really one of my driving forces for recovery. Um, because when you're sick, like you, at least I, I did not have a social life or like it was, it was just really hard and tiring to have a social life. Yeah. Um, and then plus just the physical transformation of us, right. In, in those moments, it's like, you know, talk about just mental health, like people not knowing how to talk about it, but level that up, ramp that up, you know, by 10 with people who are battling an eating disorder because they don't, look like themselves anymore. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's a hard thing to face. Yeah. Yes. I, I will say though, I didn't quite have that piece. My weight was low, but I was never, um, I didn't, it never got too, too scary. Um, because I, I have, you know, I, I've had some pretty extended conversations with friends who, um, you know, are, are in recovery, but they're still struggling. Uh, but that mm. component is actually a very difficult part for them because they're very aware of people's reactions and they don't like it. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that I, I can like feel that hurt from them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Kind of on the opposite. End. I don't know. Like I, I do remember though, like being, I, I had different feelings about it. I remember being really annoyed um, that I didn't look sicker, but then also I remember there was one point though, and it was before I went to treatment in college, my weight did drop pretty drastically. And um, I, I remember I put on a pair of shorts and um, I, Oh, it was, it was bad. Like they looked, I was like, I can't wear these. I was <laughs> like, people, people are not going to be okay. And then, and I got scared. I was mm. like, oh, uh oh. <laughs> Cause also, yeah. like at the time, I was, I was doing, you know, I was with Project Teal and I was running the Southern California chapter. And so I was just like, no, 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 no. Like, I, I, I can't, I can't be, this can't happen right now. Um, mm. I, I had a lot of guilt. Um, when I was consciously relapsing and doing project heal still. Mm. When you were relapsing in those moments, were you able to bring it up into, into your groups? And I did. Yeah. I mean, because once there, there was a moment, like when I first started talking about potentially doing treatment, um, I think I had like a big fuck you moment and that's when I started consciously relapsing. Um, and so when, it, it all kind of happened pretty seamlessly because once I, the conversation happened and I knew, I knew I was not holding myself up to my typical standards, um, as somebody like working in the field, I was very, I was pretty honest. I like, I went to people in Project Heal right away and I'm like, look, like what's going on? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so letting you know, um, I'm going to step back for a little bit. <laughs> And they're, I mean, That's they're great. True. They, they had like, it's kind of the nature of working with an organization like that. They yeah. Know how to handle it. Yeah. 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 So how long has it been since you sort of left that treatment center? Seven and a half years almost. Yeah. Okay. It was um, Feb- February 3rd. Oh no, wait, sorry. February 3rd was the day I went in. And then I, I came out like October something. So yeah, I guess. Almost okay. Yeah. Do you, I hit seven. yeah, got it. That's amazing. Uh, do you, do you consider yourself recovered? Do you, do you use that word? Not yet. No, I'm okay. still like, I'm, I'm working on intuitive eating, which is okay. exciting, <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm working on it. Like I still, um, my definition of fully recovered is changing and I am still playing around if like, if, if I want to use that term in the future, I'm keeping it open. I don't have a preference yet, but, um, my, my view of what it looks like is changing. I think it used to be, I used to think that like when you're recovered, you don't have thoughts and things aren't hard and it's a little, um, it makes me laugh now, but, um, I think, I think I'm coming to an understanding that, um, and and I'm not saying this like in a bad way, but I think I might just always have to be a bit careful, um, Mm. 
And I say that too, in a scientific way, because our brains, we have the neural pathways and like they're there and yes, they can diminish over time, but that doesn't mean that the neural pathways can like be lit up, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and they can be lit up and, and it's just like, oh, okay, that's there. And, and you notice it and like you move on. And so that's why it's like being careful if those pathways get lit up again, um, just, just knowing. Um, and I didn't, I didn't think that before. Um, but I do think I still have a, a bit more of a journey to go with like, um, peace around body image, more acceptance. Yeah. Um, and, and the food, the food pieces, of course, tied to that as well. Hmm. So it's not Tell a me about the body image. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think about it, and I, I recently had a conversation with Jess Springle about it. Um, she's a eating disorder therapist in Austin, and she also doesn't necessarily use the word recovered in her work or for herself. Mm-hmm. And I think for similar reasons, and I, I've used it myself, and I, I'm also, I'm also sort of reflecting on that because I, I do like like most deep traumas right like most like deeply profound good or bad experiences in our lives we hold them right forever and yeah. i think you know maybe it's something like that where we do need to kind of be conscious of it it's maybe not driving the car anymore but maybe it's a silent passenger that we yes. sort of uh keep back back there you know mm-hmm. in a way yeah yeah um uh, the body image stuff i i relate to that i it's it, and it's interesting and i'm wondering if you can relate to any of this i i'm i'm obviously a cisgendered male uh and i also have always been very kind of uncomfortable with my body and and not too keen on my body um even though like i would say like people externally would sort of objectively say like oh like he's got a strong athletic body yeah. i've always been uncomfortable with that like and i i think it's because like a part of me like connects muscle and strength to a certain type of man Um, and maybe that man is, uh, a patriarchal piece of shit Mm -hmm. who, you know, drives a big truck and has truck nuts. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and that's just, that's my own sort of like hangups and my own judgment. And I need to like investigate that. But like, I bring that up because I think there are so many ways that we humans can, uh, just look down on our bodies. And I, I hope that we as humans can also like take the time to be curious and explore and maybe break down some of those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, even going back to um, being in nature, there's no mirrors. <laughs> and like, it really is. It, it's something that I'm curious about with myself because, you know, the body image stuff a lot of the times, I won't say all the time, but a lot of the times kind of melts away. And mm. I'm like, oh, it's because I'm literally not looking at myself. <laughs> like, and I'm just like, 
I'm just being though, like my body is working for me to do things. Um, not that you have to eat to move. Like you should, I'm all about eating for pleasure, but like, you know, I'm feeding my body because it needs to work. And, um, I, yeah, you're just wearing, it doesn't matter what you're wearing when you're out in the back country. You just look like whatever. Um, so that's something that I've always been a bit curious about for mm. myself. I like that. I hadn't thought about that, you know, the no mirrors in nature. And it is another uh, way in which nature can sort of strip us down to our simplest humanity, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which I think is important, you know, as we as we discuss. Yeah. Do you so um you used to work at Project Heal. Now you're at Bring Change to Mind. Is that right? Yeah. So what do you uh what is your role at Bring Change to Mind and tell the listeners a little bit about the organization? Yeah, so um I'm the Southern California Regional Program Manager for Bring Change to Mind, which is a national nonprofit that works on decreasing the stigma surrounding mental illness. Uh, it was founded in 2010 by actress and advocate Glenn Close, uh, which younger listeners will know as Corilla DeVille, um, but older listeners will know from her variety of amazing works that are out there. Um, Fatal Attraction it, much? Yeah, for real. Yeah. <laughs> I always, it, it is interesting with the students I do. As soon as I say Corilla DeVille, they're like, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, yes a legend, legend students, you should know her. (laughs) Um, But she co-founded it with her sister, Jesse and her nephew, Kaylin, who both struggled with mental illness. Um, And they, Jesse came to Glenn one day and asked her if she would be able to use her celebrity status to really champion this cause. So they went to Washington, DC, they got together a whole team of experts and they were looking at what organizations were doing across the country because they wanted to ensure that they weren't duplicating efforts that were already happening. Um, and in 2010, nobody was talking about stigma, which is kind of wild because that's what everybody talks about now. Um, but both Jesse and Kaylin identified that as, um, a really difficult part of their own journeys. Um, Kaylin was in the hospital for two years. And when he came back, nobody wanted to be friends with him anymore, which is Mm. absolutely heartbreaking. Um, So there was a lot of stigma in their community. Um, So when, when they first started, it was all about getting the conversation started. Um, And uh, for Glenn, it was very, very easy to rally her friends together to put a PSA together. Um, so our first one, it was set in, um, set grant, grand central, no union. What's union station, grand station, central. Both <laughs> the of them are there. Yeah, yeah. Both of them are there. Yeah. I, I still have not been to it, but the one, the really big one with the big clock. Um, I'm not from the, East oh, Coast. that's, that's, uh, I think that's grand central. Maybe it's union. I forget. It's been a while. Okay. Well, it was set there and Ron Howard directed it. It's a pretty cool PSA. Um, but yeah, we, we did a lot of PSAs. That was like our main program for the first however many years. And then in 2015, we started the high school program, which is really our, our main, our main program. Now we still do PSAs. Um, but the, the heart of our program is now the high school program and, uh, they are peer to peer led, um, mental health, 
clubs in high schools. Um, they're evidence-based, um, education advocacy-based. So, the, I mean, it is it is a really, really awesome program. We give the students tons of resources. Um, so it's free to all schools, but then additionally, we, we give them a $500 grant uh, because we want them to put on events. Um, we want them to do activities and we don't want money to be in the way of getting all those materials for stuff. Um, so the $500 grant is like for any club related thing, if they want to get pizza for a club meeting, like whatever. Um, mm-hmm. We have a club portal, which has more than 40 different presentations on there. If they want to do something more educational, we have more than 40 different activity sheets for them to do. Um, and then, I mean, we have loads of events during the year. So you were able to come to our leadership meetup um, so usually we have a whole summit where it's like all the students, but that year we, we brought it down a little bit and just did leadership meetups. Um, so you kind of got a bit of a glimpse. It was where we had, it was so cool. Do you, it was like the upside down river. It, it was a cool space. And I, I just wanted to say, like, I, I remember being very, uh, just blown away by all of the students. Like, I, I just think about like my time as a high schooler. And having something like that in a high school, you know, I don't know if I would have like joined, but like having the access and having the opportunity to have that kind of thing, like what a, I mean, probably literally saves lives, right? It's, it is so amazing. Like I, I'm sort of all over the place because I, I have 50 schools in LA that I work with. So it's a, it's a lot of people to keep in touch with, but there we have a teen advisory board. So I get to work pretty close. Those are the students I get to work most closely with because um, I see them twice a month. Um, and I always tell people, especially the club members, like you never know when you're making an impact on somebody because most of the time they don't tell you. <laughs> so mm. like if, if somebody has made an impact on you, you should tell them because it, it means so much. But um, a really great example of this, um, we had a teen advisory board member last year who, oh, like amazing. She's so, so amazing. And this year we asked some of them to, to come do a like an alum panel for a new tab to like, let them know what it's like to be on tab and all that stuff. Um, and that was at the beginning of the school year and she started talking and she told the most beautiful story. And I didn't know any of this, but she was saying that, um, like she, she came to tab and she was really struggling with her mental health, but she actually didn't even realize she was. Um, but through her experience of being a club member, but very specifically a tab member, like she realized she was struggling and she, she got got help. She went to therapy and, um, she was just talking about how much had changed for her in the last year because she had finally reached out to get help. And she was just like this Mm -hmm. major cheerleader, just like, y'all can do it. Like, you can change it just all of this stuff. And I was just sitting there and my mind was blown. I was like, I had no idea that like she was struggling in any kind of way or, Mm. or even that the teen advisory board had that much of an impact on her. So, Oh, those, those are like my favorite stories to hear. I love it so much. Um, And these students constantly blow me away. I mean, the, the things that they're talking about and the things that they're doing are so phenomenal. Um, Mm. So I, I feel so lucky to have this job. It's so great. I 
I love that. Do you, what do you see in some of these young sort of hearts and minds that, that maybe you never sort of had, uh, as a, as a teenager, meaning like when I think about that and, and I was sort of witness to some of it, like, I just think, I just feel hope for like a, a future that is, you know, without so much, maybe, maybe there's less suffering in the world. Maybe there's less isolation in our mental health, you know, all these things because kids uh, at, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old are having, these conversations and are open, like, I guess there's not really a question in there, but like, I just like, I, I, I said, I'm blown away. I'm, I'm also just very impressed (laughs) that, that uh, a kid at 15, 16, 17 is talking about mental health. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, to piggyback off of what you were saying, I think the biggest feeling it gives me is hope. Um, because Mm -hmm. one thing that we talk about is cohort replacement. And so, um, if you think back to, I I think this reached both of our generations. So like when we were kids, um, like the anti-smoking campaign that was Mm -hmm. happening, um, like I really got drilled with that as a kid um and so i got the don't do drugs one oh yeah in the the 80s yeah Yeah, there you go (laughs) so um at least with smoking um my family is big smokers my mom still smokes but like so as a kid i would always like be chastising my mom about smoking at least Mm. in the car (laughs) like don't smoke with me (laughs) bad for me Um, yeah but like yeah so so it was like the the kids are the ones who are teaching the adults. (laughs) Um, same with, I mean, this, this was many years ago or, um, decades ago when seatbelts became a thing, like Mm -hmm. nobody wore seatbelts. And then it was the kids having to tell the parents to put seatbelts on. Mm. Um, so we're, we're really hoping to have that cohort replacement around mental health. Um, and, the older generation, I mean, they can still learn stuff, but it's not going to be the vast change we hope for. Um, but if these students are already talking about it and it's destigmatizing it and there's less shame about talking about these things, it's normalizing it. And so if it's normalizing it when they're in high school, then by the time that they're adults, you know, either maybe their parents and they're not passing that on to their kids or, you know, hopefully like they're politicians <laughs> and then there's more policies in place in the future. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's that hope for the cohort replacement that I have. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I love that. And it also just kind of, it makes me reflect on just the fact that I think that we have a tendency as a culture to look down on kids or look down on children uh, like say things like, oh, they'll never understand, you know, mm-hmm. which I think we need to break ourselves of that cycle because it's, it's incorrect. And the kid, I mean, to quote a very sort of typical thing, the kids are our future, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they know more, they, they glean more, they are sponges, they are uh, far more insightful and reflective and thoughtful than we, we as a culture give them credit. And so, um, it's something I think about a lot 
you know, especially in the con, you know, in the confines of like when I'm doing sort of inner child work and I'm thinking about my, myself as a, as a, like a teenager or as a kid, like mm-hmm. it makes me so immensely happy and proud that there are kids out there, uh, doing this work. It's phenomenal. Well, they're the ones who lately are making the changes. Like if you think about school shootings, Marjorie Stone Douglas, like those students, they, they were the ones who kind of started paving the way with like mm-hmm. students getting out there and protesting and making changes. Um, and then over the summer here in the Bay area, we didn't really have many protests for BLM last summer, which was very interesting to me. Um, hmm. I have many thoughts on that. One of them though, is that like Berkeley students were not here. So there's one item, but the two, the two main protests um, or marches, they were marches um, that we had for BLM last summer were organized and led by high schoolers, one, one in Oakland and one in San Francisco. So um, yeah, I I like to remind and and point out these examples to to some of my students and be like, if you want to make a change, like you can, you totally can. Yeah. They they are the ones that have been inspiring me lately. I'm like, dang, they're they're just out there doing stuff. Yeah. I mean, everyone, I think being open and aware enough that A, we will always be learning. We'll never uh know everything, right? Um, and and C, we can like learn from anyone and everyone, any experience, every experience, like um we get too sort of shut down in our own ruts and our own sort of narrow frames of thinking. And I, this, you know, this, these, these students and these, these young kids doing this work sort of is another reminder to just stay open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, that's so cool. I, I, I love it. And for the listeners, uh, I'll make sure to link bring change to mind uh, in the show notes uh, so you can learn more about the wonderful organization that uh, Glenn Close and fam started. Um, what is your favorite Glenn Close movie? Oh man. Okay. So um, first of all, let me premise this by like, I realize. I didn't realize until I worked at Bring Change to Mind how many movies she is in, like, from my childhood. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, okay. first of all, there's 101 Dalmatians, but then she's even in yeah. Tarzan, which is, like, my favorite childhood movie. The Oh, the Disney animated one. Yeah, she's the mama, the mama gorilla. Okay. I was, like, wa- I was watching it one day and just, like, doing some crafty projects, and then I'm like, oh, I know that voice. um no oh gosh i'm trying to think um there was one movie of hers that i watched when i'm forgetting the name of it but like she she was in vietnam i believe and she was in um like a pow camp or something oh it was all women um lesser known movie of hers i believe but also damages the tv show sure so good um i i have to admit paradise road oh yeah that's it that's it yeah. Oh, that was so good. So good. Um, I haven't watched Albert Knobs yet. I haven't seen that either. I, I've heard it's great. Yeah, I need I it has been on my list for so I mean, even like 
before bring change to mind, I, I was like, that movie looks amazing. So it's, <laughs> it's still on my list of things to watch. Yeah. She's an amazing actor. I, I of course have seen fatal attraction and, uh, just one of the most terrifying movies ever because of her performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't watch that till after I started at Brain Change to Mind. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> Just, I got to assess the type of person I'm working for. <laughs> yeah. This is intense. Very intense. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about empathy heroes, Margaret. Oh, so we it. always kind of wrap up the show talking about people in our lives or or even characters from stories or people we may not even know but just kind of are in the public space um people who are empaths people who have deep empathy deep compassion um i will go first to give you a second to think about your empathy hero um my empathy hero this week is the uh um I think scientist, botanist, uh, leader, uh, George Washington Carver, who said this, I I love this quote, Uh, George says, quote, resolve to be tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the wrong. Sometime in life, you will have been all of these, end quote. Uh, Just a reminder to... um, Empathy is a practice, everyone, and uh, it takes uh, skill, it takes mindful consideration and honing, and you never know what people are going through, you never know why they're doing the thing they're doing, so try to show up in a way that is removed of every ounce of judgment and bias and uh, preconceived notion. Um, I know it's hard and I struggle and fail at it often, but it's something I, I try every day to do. And, uh, that's why, uh, George Washington Carver is my empathy hero this week. How about you? That was an awesome quote. (laughs) I really love it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of fit in with our conversation as well. Mm hmm. Um, I will have to preface this by saying it's shocking. I haven't talked about Florence and the Machine one time yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, my empathy hero would have to be Florence Welsh. Um, she just constantly inspires me. I feel like her writing, I'm always sitting there and I'm like, wow, you just like wrote my head into words. (laughs) Mm. Um, so yeah, she, um, in particular, she there's this Vogue article she wrote like two summers ago for British Vogue. Um, and she talks about recovery in there. And I feel like um, it's very it's very empathetic. But in a I mean, she just really hit 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 the nail in. I feel like she was I appreciate how um, she doesn't make recovery seem perfect. Um, in it, she was like, I'm not a shining beacon of sanity. Like, oh, mm. girl, I like that. <laughs> um, but also in that article, she said, like, one of my favorite things ever, um, and it's, you do not beat your own heart. Um, and that, that to me is kind of how I bring myself back to empathy for myself. Um, mm. If I'm being mean to myself, like, 
reminding myself, don't, don't be mean to myself. Don't hurt myself. I do not beat my own heart. Um, Mm. I would like to get a tattoo one day. (laughs) I love that. I, I, Florence, uh, is it Welch? Pronounced or Welsh. Welsh. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, I don't know. Is she her pronoun? I don't, I'm not sure. Yes, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. She, uh, she hasn't been mentioned as an empathy hero on this show. So kudos. <laughs> I don't know I, much about her. Of course, I, I listened to their first album, I think. And it's great. Uh, she's great. And I, I didn't know that she uh, was or had been in recovery either. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She finally, she started talking about it this last album around. Okay. And, um, I mean, I, I, she didn't talk about it. And then her first single is called hunger and literally the opening lines are at 17. I started to starve myself. I thought that love was a kind of emptiness. And at least I understood then the hunger I felt and I didn't have to call it loneliness. Wow. And I, I was literally, I was at Trader Joe's, I'm on my break, and I like almost fell off my chair because mm. she was a, a huge healing component in my own recovery. Like the, the first time I got to a year without purging was literally to go to her show. Like I was like, mm. I bought this ticket and I'm like, okay, that I didn't realize that the ticket was going to line up with what would be a year if I made to it, made it to that date. And so I don't know, internally... The, the things that get you through <laughs> internally, I'm like, yeah, I, this is it. I'm not, I am, I'm getting to that date because I'm going to this concert and it's going to be a celebration and it's going to be <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I did, it, it did really help me. And so, yeah, to then find out that she had struggled as well. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> Serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Which, uh, which album is your favorite of theirs? Um, how big, how blue, how beautiful third album, um, that, um, it came out like a bit after I came out of treatment. Um, we're kind of honestly on the same healing journey path. She, she got sober. Her, her first day was two days before I went to treatment. So, um, which is also very strange. (laughs) Um, so yeah, uh, it's been very, very cool to feel like the albums also align with where I'm at in recovery. Sure. Um, it's felt very special, but yeah, how, how big will always have a very, um, very special place in my heart. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well now I need to get uh, Florence Welsh on the podcast. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> And then also, um, next, next tour, you will, uh, I will invite you to the barrier with us. We'll put a flower headband on you glitter. I would, I would be all for that. Oh my God. It's her shows are just the best. And we, the, the fandom is a really beautiful and great fandom. We're like a little family. Nice. Yeah. Nice. D- does her shows sell out pretty fast? Depending on where it is actually. Okay. I mean, I'd say for a lot of places, pit the pit does. Um, yeah. yeah, I did. I saw her in Greece um, at the Acropolis. <laughs> wow, um, getting those tickets were very stressful. It was very stressful. <laughs> sold it sold out within minutes. Yeah, and then they added oh. an update. But that's a very well, special show. 
that i mean it's a very special place for sure yeah, yeah that's cool yeah no i i i miss uh live music um so yeah i have you got count any me in tickets yet for a con upcoming concert no so the last show we went to was against me uh playing back-to-back -back nights in la um this was it october 2019 so like right before pandemic okay and amazing shows uh haven't yeah haven't even thought about it since since then i did yeah. i got a ticket to see aurora play in la in november though so it's a while nice. yeah nice uh cool well um thank you margaret uh number one florence and the machine fan fangirl <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. thank you this was lovely. yeah yeah well where can uh the listeners the feely humans out there connect with you um my, my instagram is not private so <laughs> if anybody I, i'm not a very official person but you know you can always just dm me at margaret m burton on instagram amazing yeah i am uh i'll eventually have a yoga website pretty soon but it's not up yet maybe a few months well, let me know and uh, I'll add it to the to the show notes because um, that's exciting. Yeah. Very yeah. exciting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again, Margaret. This was delightful. I, I so appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing your story and um, it's uh, it's needed. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having this podcast, too. It's really amazing. And I'm I'm so happy to have seen the growth in it and see the growth in, in everything you're doing. Like it's, it's just awesome. That That's what I love about working in this field is just like seeing what everybody's doing and like supporting each other. Yeah. I love that too. And thank you for that. Um, and I'm excited about your future endeavors in yoga. Ah, thank fun. you. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot, we have each other. It's you, me, empathy. 